You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Daniel Voitas. He's the McKnight Presidential Endowed Professor, Director at the Center for Precision Plant Genomics. So, Dan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks. Yeah, what do you do at the uh, at the center? What's your goals there or some of the work that you're doing? Right. So um, I've been working in my academic career in the gene editing space. So we've developed a number of technologies to alter the genetic code, and we focus the use of the technology on plants. Um, and so we're trying to make ways in which to edit plant genes more effectively, more robustly, and then ultimately, we want to use the technology to create, you know, plants with new traits, plants that will better withstand drought or insect attack or, you know, produce healthier food. So uh, are you focused on the, I guess, and I guess I call them the common food crops, you know, corn and rice and things like that that affect, you know, millions and billions of people or which kind of plants are most amenable to edits? Yeah. Yeah. So... At the, at the university, uh, we mostly focus on a handful of model plants, uh, you know, wild species of tobacco, Arabidopsis, and we do that because those plants are easy to, easy to handle in the laboratory. We can execute experiments really quickly and test new ideas and new technological approaches. Um, but, you know, almost 10 years ago, I, I started a, a company, Calixt, which uses the technology um, you know, in, in particular to, to create new crop varieties, soybean, wheat. Um, so it's really an application of the, the tools that we developed at the university to create, you know, new food products, healthier food products. Um, and, and that's really the, the mission of the company, to create healthier food. So, what, yeah, what would you change in a plant to make a food healthier? Like, what's the criteria for that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I'll give you an example. The first product we've created, and it's actually the first gene-edited food product uh, in, ever to enter the food supply. Um, it's, a, it's an improved soybean oil. Um, so soybean oil is typically, you know, conventional soybean oil is typically high in polyunsaturated fats. Um, and in the past, it was chemically treated um, hydrogenated to make more monounsaturated fats um, so that it behaved better for food applications. Um, but one unfortunate consequence of that chemical processing was that trans fatty acids were produced and they've, you know, in the past few years that they've been banned by the FDA from the, from the U.S. food supply. And so 
we use gene editing to solve this 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 problem. Um, so rather than chemically treating the soybean oil, we just edited the soybean genome so that it now made an oil, a much healthier oil, an oil that in which you can fry foods three times longer than conventional oil. Um, and so just through a simple gene edit, we could convert soybean oil to an oil that has properties more like olive oil, for example. Well, okay, so if you could fry it longer, uh, what does that do? I mean, is it, uh, is it a problem that soybean oil, what, I mean, what happens to it if you fry and it, you know, does it degrade to, uh, to produce unhealthy portions of it uh, if it's mm. fried for a certain amount of time? Like, what happens? Yeah, so if it's high in polyunsaturated fats and if you fry for a long period of time at high temperatures, um, the, um, you tend to polymerize, the fatty acids tend to polymerize and make, you know, almost a plastic-like substance. So, um, so it's difficult, so that, you know, the shelf or the fry life of the oil is reduced and, you know, um, the, hence the quality of the oil um, is less, uh, it's less valuable. And so this way we can fry three times as long before that oil needs to be changed out. So, you know, uh, cooks and, you know, people who are in the frying food industry, you know, they love the product because, you know, they can use it much longer without having to discard it. Oh, I see what you mean. What, uh, can you say what's being changed about the oil to allow it to be used longer? Yeah, so we simply um, inactivated a gene um, in, the, in the soybean genome, and this gene converts monounsaturated fats to polyunsaturated fats. And so with that gene inactive, now you, the soybean seed accumulates monounsaturated fats, and those are the heart-healthy oils and the oils that allow you to fry longer. So we just simply change the way soybean seeds make fatty acids, and, and hence, you know, the oil that's produced from those seeds has a very different profile, and in this case, a much better profile. How does that affect the plant itself? Does it affect its growth or other? Well, I would think that it would have other consequences on the plant. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something every time you carry out gene editing in a plant, it's something you have to think about. Are there unintended consequences? Um, so the gene we inactivated, there are several duplicate genes um, that make these polyunsaturated fats. And, and we inactivated two of them that are only expressed in the seed so the, the other, the remaining genes are expressed elsewhere in the plant. And so in this case, we didn't have any negative consequences for the plant. The plants grow and produce and yield um, the same as the unedited plants. Um, and we just affect those genes that are expressed in the seed, so we just affected the oil that's produced in the seed. Oh, so um, people that have, uh, I don't know, edamame, will this help them? Uh, are there other ways that... You know, I'm sure there's many, many, many ways soybeans are used, so not just for yeah. frying oil, but uh, what other ways would it be affected positively for consumers? Well, um, I mean, the way I sort of view, I sort of view soybean, if you will, as a chassis for creating a wide variety of oils that could have many different purposes, right? So we know the genes that make the fatty acids that comprise the oil, and so we can, through editing, we can... Um, you know, change the genetic code, change those genes in certain ways to give us different oil profiles. So you could imagine, um, so our, the first gene-edited product is this healthier oil for frying, 
but maybe you could make soybean produce a substitute for palm oil. Um, you know, palm uh, has desirable properties as a food ingredient, but of course you have to produce it in, in you know, tropical regions of the world and, you know, deforestation occurs in order to plant more palm. So why not just make soybean make a palm oil substitute or a cocoa butter substitute or a wide variety of, you know, oils that we use as food ingredients on a, on a daily basis. Gene editing is, I believe, is, you know, a powerful enough approach to enable that to happen. Um, what, I mean, what oils are made from, like, a soybean base typically right now? Uh, so typically right now, um, soybean is, the soybean grain is crushed to produce oil. And, um, you know, certainly that oil is, you know, millions of metric tons of that oil are made um, annually, and they're, it's used in a wide variety of food ingredients. Um, we just, uh, <clears throat> for certain applications like frying, we just created a soybean variety that would make a better oil for those purposes. Um, so as I mentioned earlier on, in the past, soybean oil was chemically treated to achieve uh, these improved properties. Um, and with the FDA requiring that foods that have trans fatty acids be labeled and then ultimately banning foods with trans fatty acids, food manufacturers turn to canola oil or, or sunflower oil or other types of oils that would give them the properties that, the, that once upon a time the chemically treated soybean oil provided. So we just gave soybean um, attributes, you know, genetic um, attributes that would allow it to produce now that better oil, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, all right, what, what other modifications are you looking at doing? So you have soybeans, and like you said, they're, they're very versatile. They're like a chassis. What else? Yeah, so the the next crop that we will, um, that we're working on is wheat. Um, and so there I view wheat as a chassis for <laughs> carbohydrate production, right? So our first product in wheat will have higher dietary fiber, um, and so the idea is that if you, you know, eat a sandwich made from flour from our wheat variety, you have a, a, a much better chance of meeting your daily fiber requirements than if you ate, a, ate sort of conventional wheat flour. So there again, we're using the editing technology to create, um, yeah, a healthier food ingredient. Oh, well, specifically with wheat, what are you working on doing? Uh, so there we're just changing the starch composition. We're making starch so that it's less readily digested by our body, and therefore when it's digested, it's broken down into simple sugars, and those simple sugars um, are then used you know, as a source of energy. But if you change the starch and the structure of the starch so that it's broken down less readily, then it serves as a source of, of dietary fiber. So that's an example in wheat. Um, so our... Our business is a little unconventional. So, um, you know, in Minnesota, at our, at you know, where where we're located, where the company is located, we create these crop varieties. But then we contract with farmers in South Dakota, and Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, to grow our varieties for us. And then we buy back the grain they produce, and then process it into the food ingredient, the healthier food ingredient. So. We're a company that uses gene editing to make the food ingredients and actually produce and sell the food ingredient in the end. And so I talk about soybean and wheat because our South Dakota partner farmers, they grow soybean and wheat. And so 
um, we were focusing on the crops that our um, producers, namely the farmers, uh, grow in, in those geographical regions. But we're, we're working with other, we all then partner with, with other companies and other entities to make other types of, of crop varieties that produce different, you know, food ingredients or um, enhance sustainability of agriculture. Well, okay, so in the changes that you're making, have you seen that you're able to isolate genes and make changes that don't affect the, the, the rest of the plant or the rest of the food stuff, or is it, has it been tricky? Have there been dependencies? Yeah, no, it depends on, you know, it's sort of a, a trait by trait, gene by gene, um, you know, it depends. Um, I mean, we're focusing on... Um, pathways, metabolic pathways that are pretty well understood, fatty acid biosynthesis, starch biosynthesis, for example, carbohydrate biosynthesis. But, you know, biology, we still, it's, there's still a lot to be learned, and sometimes you'll inactivate a gene and you'll find, you know, it has some other unintended consequences, maybe reduces yield or maybe reduces yield at certain temperatures when it's grown. And so... You know, we have a rich pipeline of traits that we're developing, and, you know, because biology is, there's some uncertainties in our understanding of biology, sometimes some of the product concepts fall to the wayside because we make the edit and it had unintended consequences, and so it was not an ideal product candidate after all, if that makes sense. What about um, looking at yields, or is that a whole other area that uh, is a whole other can of worms? Well, it, it is a whole other can of worms, but I think editing, gene editing technology uh, can be applied you know, far beyond um, making healthier foods. So pest and pathogen resistance, drought tolerance, uh, you know, all of those can can be I believe improved through the use of gene editing. The the as I said for you know fatty acid biosynthesis and carbohydrate biosynthesis, we really understand the genes that are involved in those processes. But when you talk about yield or pest tolerance or drought tolerance, there are many different genes that work together uh, to confer those traits. So um, we still need to learn a fair bit more about the underlying biology. Um, how those genes contribute to those traits and, and promote yield. Um, but then ultimately, I think we can, we will be able to use the gene editing technology to confer those types of traits. Yeah, and uh, in speaking to other plant people over the years, I guess the average, uh, at least the photosynthetic efficiency is like 1% for many plants, and the superstars of the plant world are what, 2 or 3%. I don't know about the, uh, you know, how that translates exactly to yield. But you, any numbers on, I don't know, how would you express yield, I guess, currently, let's say for rice or wheat or soybeans yeah. or corn? It's usually the amount of grain produced per unit of land, acre, hectare, for example. Um, so that's typically how yield is calculated. But, uh, yeah, you alluded to photosynthesis. There's a lot of amazing and incredible work being done right now on on making photosynthesis more um, efficient, and the consequence is that yields increase. The amount of grain you can harvest per acre uh, can increase. The biomass 
amount of you know vegetative material produced on an acre of land can increase if photosynthesis photosynthetic efficiency is increased. And those technologies require, uh, in many cases, or benefit from gene editing. Uh, so you can go in and make the tweaks that will allow you to be more productive and allow the plant to be more productive. What about doing this through hybridization? Are there any other strains, let's say, of, uh, of corn or soybeans out there or other plants that you can you know, hybridize these with and maybe accomplish the gene editing in a different way? Or is, it, is that much sloppier and this is more precise? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, that's the conventional way we've created new crop varieties. We cross, um, you know, different varieties that have different traits or we mutagenize a variety. Um, but in those, in, in a breeding program, uh, what you're doing is you're combining genes from two varieties in, in, in different ways. And you're hoping that some combination will give you will improve the plant for you know whatever trait you're interested in, but that's an inherently kind of random process and 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 not well controlled. Sometimes it's just serendipitous if you know you land upon the right combination of genes to, that give you the trait you're after. Let's say improved yield. Um, gene editing is sort of different in the sense that that we start off. Um, with the hypothesis, at least, that we know if we tweak certain genes in a certain way, they're going to give us a desired outcome. And again, you alluded, you know, throughout this conversation, sometimes, you know, we're wrong. But, you know, as we increasingly understand about how plant genes work and function, um, you know, we get better and better at predicting which genes and which genetic alterations are going to give you an improved plant. So it's a really, it's 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 a nice, I think it's a nice comparison to sort of the random stochastic process, you know, that takes place during breeding as opposed to the more precise, focused, and directed approach of, of gene editing. What about um, pest resistance and, uh, you know, resiliency of a, let's say, of a given field? You know, would, have you looked at possibly doing gene editing so that you produce extremely similar but different types of, uh, you know, of let's say corn plants so that you can plant a field and have maybe, I don't know, 10 different types of corn, even though they're almost all exactly the same, mm -hmm. but they're different enough so that pests wouldn't destroy the whole field. They'd only destroy certain ones or mm -hmm. they'd be, you know, certain ones would be resistant somehow or have different phenotype that uh, would be resistant to an issue that would normally wipe out the whole field, but only wipes out part of it. Yeah. That's uh, it. It's a really interesting point because, you know, typically what's done now is, you know, you have thousands of acres planted with a single variety, right? And that, that does present an inherent risk if that variety is susceptible to a particular disease or, you know, a new pest or pathogen enters the, the geography where that particular variety is being grown. Uh, yeah, so that that's um, – we can certainly use gene editing to create – you know, a whole array of plants that are resistant to different pests and pathogens. Um, the flip side of the coin, though, is that then you need farming practices that would incorporate that genetic diversity that we create. Um, and so it's certainly doable and, uh, and an approach that can well be undertaken. Yeah, I guess if you get good at tuning it good yeah. enough and you're precise yeah. enough, then, you know, to the eye, everything would look maybe the same. But to yep. the... Uh, 
did the appetite of a certain pest, let's say, it would look different. <laughs> so. Very different, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any um, moonshots or things are tough problems so far, but you're working on? Well, you know, I, I focus a lot, and, and this is circling back to my, my work at the university, we focus a lot on uh, improving the technology, making it more efficient and easy to edit plant genes. Um, and so right now we're kind of in the era of editing one or a few genes at a time. But kind of getting back to the, you know, you were talking about comparing and contrasting to breeding. You know, when you cross two plants, you know, you're mixing, and you know, the genotype of the, of the two parents, the genotypes of the two parents. So uh, the progeny have a wide variety of, of genetic variation, a lot of different gene combinations that are put together. And so we're working hard now on moving gene editing from altering one or a few genes at a time to maybe altering hundreds or even thousands of genes uh, simultaneously. And so then you can really think about not just changing the fatty acid composition of that soybean, our first gene edited product, but the fatty acid composition of that soybean, making it resistant to cyst nematodes, so pests and pathogens, um, making it possible to grow in new geographies or under on marginal lands or, you know, or places where um, the season is particularly short as you move north with soybean to Canada, for example. So all of that would require, you know, it takes, you know, we can, over a few years span, we can create a new soybean variety that, in which that has a few altered genes, but it'd be great to, in a few years span, make a soybean variety that has many genes and many new and improved attributes. Well, also, too, I, I would assume this happens in plants, but epigenetic effects, you know, uh, based on season, based on just, you know, the plant doing what it does, mm -hmm. are you somehow cataloging those? You, know, like you make a change to a gene. You add, remove, ever it is, change gene expression. But then the epigenetic effects kick in, the adaptation. You know, it goes through the, the hot season, the cold season, the whatever it is. Yep. Yep. How do you know what's going to happen to the changes you make and how they'll come out in the wash, I guess, you know, to mix metaphors? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at this stage of the game, we, and I, and I mean myself and many of the people working in gene editing, are mostly focused on altering the genetic code. Um, now, as you suggest, some of those alterations can have consequences for the epigenome. And some of my colleagues are actually working on making directed modifications to the epigenome, changing DNA methylation patterns, for example, which can change gene expression. So that's kind of a, a very, um, you know, I would call it a new frontier is sort of editing the epigenome. But um, most of what we do now is change the genome. And then when we see a phenotype, a consequence for changing the genome, We'll, we'll, we'll look at you know how that was how that change came about. Was it did we alter expression of the gene? Did we inactivate a gene, or did we change the epigenetic landscape around that gene gene by changing the the DNA sequence? So all of those are kind of possibilities. Okay. So what do you see as the uh, the future for your work over the next few years? What would you love to see happen? Well, I feel very fortunate, and because I have my, I, I'm involved in, you know, I have two jobs really, right? 
So at the university, uh, we develop new technologies, we improve the technologies. I work hand in hand with colleagues all around the world who have the same ambition. And, you know, you're continually learning, you know, science is moving at a really rapid pace. So there's underlying biology that we're learning all the time and trying to understand how to, to harness that new information and apply it to improve gene editing. And then I, I go to the company that I helped found, and there I can see, take the state-of-the-art technology and, and see it being realized into, you know, creating healthier food ingredients. So, yeah, so I feel very fortunate to, to have, to be, to keep abreast and to participate in the advancement of the science, but then also to go to the company and, and see it uh, developed and applied and uh, to create, you know, in the case of Calix and its mission, healthier food ingredients. Are there any, um, I guess, last question or so, are there any dream foods that, uh, you know, people have been talking about altering for a long time that just are, you know, have been out of reach for some reason? Well, I think uh, an interesting area that we've gotten increasingly involved in is, uh, you know, we call them orphan crops, right? Like soybean and corn and, you know, wheat, they've been, sub- they've been the subjects of intense breeding efforts over the years. And, you know, dramatic improvements have been seen in, in yields and, and productivity. But, I, you know, I have a graduate student who was born in Ethiopia, and her grandfather farmed this um, grain called teff, uh, which is a staple of uh, Ethiopia um, and the countries um, of Eastern Africa. And, you know, the varieties of teff that they grow are really wild land races. Um, and so she's come to my lab because she wants to use gene editing to create, to introduce a few traits that could really have remarkable Im- improvements on the productivity productivity of this crop so it's tall and lanky and it falls over and a lot of the seed is lost so she's interested in making semi-dwarf varieties of of teff that would hopefully produce more and be easier to harvest as one example so you know i think there's a lot of opportunity that's just one example there's a lot of there's a lot of crops and a lot of uh you know from vegetables to grains to fruits that have not really been subjected to intense breeding efforts. And gene editing, now that we understand a lot about how plant genes work and function, gene editing can be used to improve those, those sort of orphan crops very quickly, very dramatically, um, and, you know, and increase food security and, and the food supply, I believe. Well, very good. Well, Daniel, what's the best way for people to find out more about what you're working on and, you know, possibly get in touch well, I think the easiest way is just send me an email at, at my university address, um, voitas at umn.edu. And uh, also I have a website, of course, at the university that provides some contact information. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yep. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. 
My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.